which is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Today's teaching is by Pastor Daryl Ruin. Isn't it good that, um, that God gives us he gives us the freedom to ask Him for more faith. You know, as I was singing that, I, um, I, I hope you, like me, made it made it your prayer. I don't I don't know how often it is supposed to happen, but it, it seems to happen um, on a seasonal basis for me that I that I get to a point in my my spiritual walk where God simply requires that I beg Him for more faith. Have you, have you been there? Have you felt that? that? That you just know you don't have the faith in you. You need Him to, to raise your faith quota, your, your own faith level within you, because you, you can't do it. Uh, I'm so glad that the Bible says that where we lack faith, he will, he will give us faith. You know, sometimes, I don't know about you, sometimes I even pray that God help me to love Him more. Like I, I just confess to Him, God, I don't, I don't love you the way that I have before or that I, I even want to in the future. Lord, help me to do that. And, and God is faithful to, to give us what we don't even have when we ask Him. Uh, I'm, I'm even more grateful that He lets us be honest with Him and just say, Lord, I don't love you the way I ought to. My faith isn't where it needs to be. So um, why, why don't we continue our prayer for just a moment before we jump into Matthew chapter 3. Thank you, Lord, that, um, that we can sing songs that remind us of Your character and of Your faithfulness. And we beg of you that you would cause our faith to arise. Raise our faith to a greater level. Just from being together this morning. Just from being in your house. Just from being reminded that you are faithful, God, forever. You are faithful forever. Thank you, Lord, that you let me, you let me be honest in my heart with you and tell you when I, when I just don't feel it. Maybe the way I have before or the way I just want to, Lord, I, when I don't love you the way I know I should or when I want to love you more and I just can't seem to find it in myself, Lord, thank you that I could beg you for it and that, that you're faithful to, to grant us the petitions of our heart, especially when they're, when they're requests for more of you. But I pray for, for those who call Cornerstone home and those who, who found themselves in this place this morning that they would find peace in your presence this morning. They'd find rest They'd find that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. That you're not a burden, but you are a great help in time of need. You're the fortress that we run into. You're our great protector. Jesus, you're, you're the head of angel armies. And you're on our side. You're for us, not against us. You call us children, beloved, friends. Lord, make us feel safe this morning. In your presence. Make us feel safe by your love this morning. Remind us that the banner you wave over us, the declaration you hold over us, is a banner and a declaration of love, grace, and mercy. Lord, it's in that, it's in that place that we can sit and rest. And we can be honest with you, Lord, when we don't, when we just don't. We just don't have it in us. So Lord, for whatever's lacking in our hearts this morning, we beg you for it. Would you fill us up? Lord, where my faith is lacking, 
would you grant me greater faith? Where my, where my hope in your future plan for me is, is uh, short-sighted, Lord, would you, give me, would you give me a glimpse around the corner? And Lord, as the prayers of the saints rise, would you count them as worship this morning? As we depend on you, our Father, for all that we have. And as we uh, move into this morning's message, I pray that you would use it to make us the men and the women that you would have us be Monday through Friday. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. We are in week two of our series called The Dash, The Dash of Jesus. And if you missed last week, uh, let me catch you up a little bit. It comes from a poem that my mom and my mother-in-law both sent me, a poem called The Dash, written I think in 1996, I said, so it's not very old. But the poem, the premise of the poem is the dash that will go on your tombstone. And the poem goes that uh, I once heard this, this man in a, in a funeral read about the dash. And you remember, if you've been to a funeral, that there is usually in the obituary a dash that comes between two dates, your birth date and your perishable date, right? The, the date that you will be gone off of this earth. And separating those two dates is a dash. Now, we particularly usually pay attention to the birth date and the ending date. We don't really give much attention to the dash. So the poem is about this dash. And the premise to the poem, after you get through the whole thing, and it's, it's a little lengthy, is simply this. Make sure you spend your dash, make sure you spend your life wisely, because in a flash, the dash comes to an end. And before you know it, there'll be a group of people, hopefully a sizable group of people, who will come together at your ending date, and they will celebrate your life. They'll come together, and they'll, and they'll laugh, and they'll cry, and they'll tell stories about how you impacted their life. Hopefully they'll tell good stories about how you impacted their life, right? But they'll tell stories, and someone will stand up the front like me, and they'll tell, tell stories of your faithfulness or your, your kindness or your compassionate uh, heart. They'll, they'll tell stories about your dash. And so by the end of the poem, the point is for you and I to say, I better use my dash wisely. Because one day it's going to be me that they're talking about. I got to thinking about that poem, and I, I kind of took it and I spun it into the series that we're in week two of now. And the, the, the spin is this. I started to wonder about the dash of Jesus Christ. The dash that comes between a cradle and a cross. The, the living years of Jesus. The time between the, the giant holidays, Christmas, the cradle, and Easter, the, the cross and the resurrection. We celebrate those holidays and we spend a vast amount of time teaching about the impact, theological impact of those holidays as well we should. If it were not for Christmas and if it were not for Easter, we would have no faith at all. We would be, as Paul would say, uh, to be pitied more than any men on earth because we are believing in something that is essentially false. And we have no hope. And our hope is in vain. So you can't, you can't get rid of Christmas. You can't get rid of Easter. But what I got to thinking about was, you know, I wonder if there are some lessons from the dash of Jesus Christ that could help impact and help influence our dash. You know, we have, we have in Jesus Christ the greatest example, right? We know that. The example is not just from his birth and his death, however. The example comes throughout his whole life. Last week, we started in Matthew chapter 3. And if you remember, we, we found ourselves at the story. Once you get past Christmas, we found ourselves at the story of Jesus coming to be baptized. 
And the point of last week's message, the lesson from the dash of Jesus Christ, was very simply this. Jesus patiently waited. And the question I asked you was, how many of you are waiting on God for something? And at some point in some time, we all find ourselves waiting on God for something, right? Some of you right now may be waiting on God for something. Maybe it's something small. Maybe it's something big. Some of you have already shared with me since last week the, the types of things you've been waiting on God for. The point of last week's lesson was, well, not only do we have to wait, but Jesus, our ultimate example, who can identify with us in every way, He waited. That simple. He waited. It struck me that He waited when we, we get to Matthew 3, after you read through the... Uh, the narrative of his birth, you get through the kings and the magi and the, and the flight to Egypt and all that, you find in, in, in Matthew chapter 3 that John the Baptist comes on the scene, who's the cousin of Jesus, and the next thing you know, Jesus is 30 years old, we learn from other Gospels, and Matthew 3.13, he's coming now to Galilee, to the Jordan, and his cousin is going to baptize him. He's, he's all grown up now. And we pointed out that... Um, you know, we don't really get much information on those interim years. Jesus was born, and we, we know everything that happened surrounding his birth and the controversy and the hope that came with that and the great theological impact and all the great lessons that come about from there. We don't really don't get much about Jesus' childhood or his teen years. The next thing we know, he's 30 years old, and he's entering into his ministry. The baptism will be his inauguration to become king. And we're left to conclude that in the meantime, he waited. I mean, think about that for a moment. He waited 30 years in a carpenter's shop. God incarnate. Cutting, sawing, sanding, building. The most we can infer was he was faithful to his duties, his simple duties of the home, his simple duties of his workshop, all the time knowing Mind you, he was God incarnate. All the time knowing that there was a lost world waiting. All the time knowing that the world was waiting for him. Never ever being frustrated while he waited. Never ever doubting the plan that God had set out. And that that plan would take shape in God's good time. He waited. Those are the sort of things we're looking for in the dash of Jesus. As I skim through the Gospels, I'm, I'm specifically praying, God, help me to see something in the dash of Jesus that will help me in my dash. And so last week, I, I, I had to learn from the fact that, you know what? Um, Jesus isn't, isn't, um, he isn't unfamiliar with the weight, is he? I mean, can you imagine being God incarnate, knowing what your purpose would be in all the earth, and you spend 30 years waiting for that time to come. He waited. He waited patiently. Today, I came across another, another snippet of Jesus' life that um, still here in the baptism is where it sparked in my mind. But the lesson, I guess, I'll go ahead and tip my hand to you, is that Jesus was humbly obedient. Jesus was humbly obedient. As I read through the story of Jesus being baptized, it struck me. Listen to the words. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee 
at the Jordan coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And all the language here, by the way, is in the emphatic in the Greek. But I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, and this is what he said, Permit it at this time, for in this way it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens opened up. You know the story. The Spirit of God descending like a dove, lighting on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And it gets into, very quickly, just this big, magnificent moment. But what struck me was, Jesus decided to be obedient and do this thing called baptism that if we really look into it, if we really dove into the theology of the thing, he need not be baptized. If you go back, John the Baptist was baptizing for the remission of what? Sins. And he made that very clear. Jesus came sinless. That's part of the reason that John, his cousin, said, listen, wait a second. You don't need to be baptized. It's not, it's not for you because you, you're not coming repentant because you're not repentant because you have no sins to be repentant of. So hold up right there, Jesus. This isn't, this isn't a baptism for you. Right alongside that, you've got to know that John the Baptist is thinking to himself, well, listen, not only does he not need it, but if anybody's getting baptized by anybody, I need to be getting baptized by you. So uh, this, this isn't how this should work. But for some reason or another, and maybe this is a whole other sermon for another day, some reason or another, Jesus says, hold on, John, I do need to be baptized. This is going to happen. It's right for this to happen, so let's do it. Let's do this thing. Now, the sermon for another day, I'll just give you a little bit, I'll give you a little bit of the reason why, just so you're not completely left hanging, because we should all be asking the question, if Jesus has no repentance, if he has no remission of sins to be taken care of here in baptism, I mean, why is he doing this? That should, that's a legitimate question. If you just want a short sermon on it, he's doing it, I think, to identify. To identify with the rest of us sinners who he has come to save. The Bible says that the one who knew no sin becomes sin on our behalf. And so he does it to identify with the rest of us sinners and what we must do. I think he does it to identify with righteousness. He says it's for righteousness sake that he does this. I think he does it because it's the right thing to do. And as a model of doing all things that are right, Jesus would would do that. He would identify with righteousness. I think he does it also to identify with his future cross. If you think about it, Jesus... Here in this picture, before, before a whole crowd, it doesn't say here, but I think it says in Luke, that he does this while everyone else was being baptized by John. So he, there's a crowd here. In fact, the, the Greek word in verse 13 where it says, and Jesus arrived, it's the word that's kind of this, this, um, uh, this word that connotates that he is, he is proclaiming himself. He's putting himself on a stage. He's bringing himself to be, to be shown. It, it's a declaration what Jesus is doing, and he wants everyone to see it. And there's a crowd here. There's a crowd here. So he's identifying with the sinners. He's identifying with what is the righteous thing for us to be doing. But he's identifying as well, think about it, with his cross. He is, he is saying that, that I, I am here to be, to be buried. I'm here to, to die and to be raised again. For the remission of sins, not my sins, but your sins. It's a beautiful picture. But that's, that's really not... That's really not a, my focus for this morning. My focus for this morning is just to look, look at the Monday through Friday lesson for us. That, that's what this series is about. 
not about the great theological points, but about those Monday through Friday lessons for you and me. And here it is. Just like last week, it's very simple. Last week, Jesus patiently waited. Guess what? As we wait, Jesus gets it. Simple. But, but it, it's so impactful for me as I wait and as you wait. Just as simple but just as impactful, I think, is the very, is the very next point. That Jesus, Jesus was willing to be humbly and simply obedient. John, it's the right thing that we need to do it. Let's do it. John says, okay, let's do it. I mean, you've got to know, John was, John was emphatically against this. He was emphatically against this. There's a whole lot of reasons why John says, no, this isn't the right thing. And Jesus just says, it's the right thing, so let's do it. And what struck me is, is that, you know, as I think about the dash of Jesus, not only was he obedient, obedient unto death, right? And that's the, that's the thing we celebrate. He was obedient all the way unto the cross, as Philippians would say. But he was obedient in his life. He did the right thing always, big and small. Jesus always did the right thing. Simply, at times, it seems, because it was the right thing to do. And he doesn't give a great explanation to John, does he? He doesn't go into all the reasons why it is the right thing to do. He simply says, it's the right thing to do. Let's do it. And John had to go along with it. We don't, we don't really even know if John, if John somehow understood why it was the right thing to do. I'm impressed by John because he went right along with the Savior. And he says, okay, if you say so, we'll do it. And he does it. Jesus was humbly obedient. You know, this isn't the first, this isn't really the first time we hear from Jesus. You know, as we think about, uh, remember I alluded to last week that we have this gap of Jesus' life from the time he was, a, from, from the time he was born until now. But we do, we do hear from him. We do hear from him. But this is the first time he's spoken, in Scripture at least, right? He said other stuff. But this is the first time we hear from him in Scripture since he was 12 years old. These are the first words of Jesus at his baptism since he was 12 years old, at least that get recorded in Scripture. I think that, I think that says something. You want to go back to the time he was 12? Turn to Luke chapter 2 with me. Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, we find Jesus is a 12-year-old and he's in the temple. You remember the story? His parents, they do what they ought to do. They do the right thing, and they're going to bring him to Jerusalem to be presented, and he gets presented. And you remember the story of Simeon, and, and uh, he gets presented at the temple. And then the whole, the whole lot of uh, Jesus' family and, and, and his parents and, and their whole entourage, their whole caravan, it says, they get back on their horses, back in their buggies, and they're heading back to Nazareth, right? And then they, they get a day's journey in, and they're looking around, and they say, hey, where is Jesus? The 12-year-old who's got some freedom now, right, as you can imagine, he's with a bunch of families in this traveling caravan of people who've come to Nazareth. They all start heading back, and now a day into it, Mary's like, where's Jesus? And so you remember the story. They go back, and they find Jesus where? They find him in the temple. And here are the words of that, of that occasion. Verse 48, I'll pick it up in Luke chapter 2. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us in this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. What any parent would say. You can't find your kid and you find him and they've been dilly-dallying with something else. You don't understand why. What are you doing? Do you know how worried your mother and I have been? 
Look at Jesus' response. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? An interesting statement. Why, why were you looking for me? I don't think he's saying there, why were you looking for me, in the sense that it's strange that my parents would be looking for me. I think he's saying it in the sense that it's strange that you wouldn't know where I am. I think he, he goes on to say that in verse 49. Did you not know that I had to be in, in my translation, New American Standard says, in my father's house? Other translations may say something a little different. If you were to pull it out of the Greek a little more, a little more directly, a little more wooden, it would say something more like, did you not know that I had to be about my father's business? Did you not know that I would be wrapped up in what my father is doing? Meaning his heavenly father. From that, we, we get, maybe it's not a bad picture, we get the idea that he says, I had, to be, I had to be at the temple, I had to be in my father's house. I had to be about my father's business. It struck me again, the, the last time we heard Jesus talk, and now it is baptism when we hear him talk, he's always, he's always about being faithful to what the right thing is. And as a 12-year-old, he knew that the right thing for him to be was about the business of his father. And at 30, he knew instinctively, once again, the right thing for me to do, John, even though you're saying no, is to be baptized. He always seems to want to do the right thing. Even if it doesn't seem like the most convenient thing, even if it doesn't seem like the easiest thing, even if it doesn't seem like the right thing at the time, Jesus always finds a way to do the right thing. How about us? How about us? How about you? How about me? How about our Monday? How about our, our, our Friday night? I mean, do we have the attitude of Jesus? Here's the whole kit and caboodle of the lesson. Do we have the attitude of Jesus that we want to be humbly obedient no matter what it is, no matter how big it is, if it's a cross or how small it is? Um, I need to be about my father's business. That's the right thing to do. Look what else it says here in Luke chapter 2 because he wasn't just obedient to his father. He was obedient to his parents as well. Verse 50. Luke 2, verse 50, but they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And <laughs> that's true very often. Verse 51, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Another way to translate verse 51 is that her, his mother treasured all the declarations in her heart, all the declarations of Jesus. Everything that he had been saying, she she. she Literally, she held it through in her heart. She, she grabbed it tightly and she didn't let it go. She couldn't unpack it all, these things that he was saying. Here's what impressed me. What impressed me was that he knew it was the right thing to do to be about the business of his father. That simple truth permeates the entire dash of Jesus Christ. No matter where you find Jesus, no matter what age, no matter what point of scripture you find Jesus, he's always about the business of his father. Can that be said of you and I? On your dash that is your life, could it be said of you that no matter where you're found, you're always going to be about the business of your father? Could you, if questioned, turn to those who, who question you and say, I don't know why this is surprising you that I would be about the business of the father. I don't know why it's surprising you that I've made decisions in my life that are based on what the king wants and not just what you might obviously think I would be doing. But there we find that he turns around and he, he follows them home, doesn't he? And not only is he obedient to the Father, but he's obedient to his parents. 
And he continued to be in subjection to them. Once again, Jesus, everywhere we turn, he's doing the right thing. He's humbly obedient, no matter what it is. Even in the years that we, that we don't see Jesus, we get a glimpse here at 12, but all the way until 30, John MacArthur says it this way, that he's, just, he's apparently doing his business in the wood shop. And he's doing it faithfully, and he's doing it humbly, and he's not, he's not complaining to the Father. We have no indication that he, that he cries out to the Father. What's the holdup? When is this thing going to happen? We simply see him walk out of Nazareth into the Jordan, and now it's time. No complaints. No grumbling. No confusion. No questions. Thirty years obedient humbly obedient, 30 years patient, 30 years waiting. Now it's time to go. And he does it. And the first guy he talks to says, no, that's not what we're going to do. And Jesus' simple words is, it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. I heard a story of a missionary female missionary, Wycliffe Bible missionary, and she was, she was on the field and she was working with some young children. And the story goes that she had just painted the railing around the porch of her house and she was inside doing some dishes and the paint was still drying on the railing and one of her, one of her favorite young um, missionary children came running up the uh, stairs onto the deck and uh, she shouted out to him, Johnny, don't, don't use, don't use the, the back deck entrance. Come around to the front because the paint's wet on the railing. And she knew instinctively that he would grab the railing on his way up the stairs and all the way around to the back door. And she says, use the front door. The paint's wet. And he says, I'll be careful, as a five-year-old would, I'll be careful. And he, he continues up the stairs. And she shouted out to him, no, use the front door, Johnny. And he says, no, ma'am, I, I'll be careful. Don't worry. And she shouted out to him just as he begins to grab the rail as she knew he would. I'm not asking for you to be careful. I'm asking for you to be obedient. And I thought, wow, what power in that, right? How many times as parents, uh, Kimberly and I know this very well with a nine and six year old boy, both of which are very kind of stubborn right now at this point. uh, And daily we ask them to be obedient, not just careful or not just thoughtful or not to make their own decisions or not to figure out their own way. We just ask them to do it. Do what I ask you to do, right? Have you had those conversations with your kids? I'm not asking you to think it through, son. I'm just asking you to do what I, do what I said to do, right? No debate, no questions. Don't worry about it. I can't tell you how many times just this week uh, with my nine-year-old, I've, I've had to remind him, listen, I'm 38, you're nine, just trust me on this, right? Have you had those conversations? Uh, the, the, the bigger impact of that missionary story was that it hit her as she, as she dropped the dish in the sink, as the words came out of her mouth, it hit her that that's probably how the father looks at her very often. She says, how often, Lord, as she cried out in a prayer shortly after, how often am I, Saul, not listening to the words of Samuel? Do you remember that story from 1 Samuel 15? Samuel is told to go and eliminate the enemy. 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 And Saul goes and he... uh, he goes to war, but he doesn't, he doesn't carry, carry out the orders of the Lord. He doesn't do what God's asked him to do. Not completely. He lets some people live that he shouldn't have let live. In fact, he brings back the king of one of the tribes he was supposed to eliminate completely. 
instead of eliminating all their cattle and all their and all their all their goods and getting rid of it all, which he was instructed to do very clearly, he decides that he's going to bring some of the best sheep and some of the best ox, some of the best uh, treasure back. And Samuel, who's the voice piece of God in the kingdom at this point, goes to the king after God says, this is what Saul did, go and confront him. He goes back to Saul and he says, Saul, what have you done? And Saul says, well, look, I did what God told me to do, but guess what? I brought back the king. I got him right here. He's alive and well, and we can, we can do whatever we want with him now. And I brought back all of his best sheep, and I'm going to offer all this to the Lord, right? And he, and, he, and he uses all these righteous excuses for why he created a plan different from what the father had told him to do in the first place. And Samuel says, listen, we didn't ask you to come up with a whole other plan. God said to do this. And this guy shouldn't be alive. And Samuel, actually, the story goes on to say, Samuel gets the guy and brings him in front of the whole congregation and he executes him right there because that's what should have been done to begin with. And he says, don't tell me about offering all this stuff unto the Lord. It may have just been a convenient excuse for Saul, by the way. Don't tell me about that. Just do what God asked you to do. And the missionary said, you know, Lord, forgive me. You're not asking me to be careful. You're asking me for obedience. Where in your life is God not asking you to figure it out yourself? He's simply asking you to do the right thing. Do the obedient thing. To be humbly, like Jesus, to be humbly obedient. Jesus, we don't need to baptize you. We do. This is the right thing to do. And Jesus does it. Why would you be surprised I'm about my father's business? He's obedient to his father. He's obedient to his parents. Remember Matthew 17. You can turn with me if you'd like. Matthew 17, it's the story of Peter and the tax collector. And the tax collector comes to Peter and he says essentially, you know, trying to catch Jesus in in some sort of snare, some sort of lie, looking for some point in Jesus' life where Jesus drops the ball and doesn't do the right thing. Uh, One of the tax collectors comes to Peter and says, hey, is your master, is he given what he's supposed to be given as far as taxes? And Peter says, yeah, he's given what he's supposed to be given. It's a good thing he was, or Peter would have had to lie, right? Or he would have had to tell the truth, and now Jesus would have been caught in some sort of offense. Peter says, yeah, he's doing what he's supposed to do. The story goes on that Jesus comes, uh, Peter comes back to Jesus, and Jesus says, Peter, what do you think about that? What do you think about that? You think that was right for us to do that? Essentially, Jesus gives him a little parable and says, it is right for us to do that. Let's do the right thing. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. Let's pay it. And then he sends Peter down to the water, remember? And he says, go fishing and pull, a, pull, pull some money out of the mouth of the fish when you get there. And it's just this whole story of God's amazing provision, following up, doing the right thing. Jesus is an entire life, his whole dash, not just, not just in his birth and not just in his death and resurrection, but just on his, on his Mondays and on his Wednesdays and on his Friday nights, we find over and over Jesus is humbly obedient. How about us? How about you? I mean, forget the giant things. Forget the, forget the cradle and the cross things of your life. Forget the big, the big questions, you know, the big missionary uh, theological questions. Just how about tomorrow? Are you going to be humbly obedient? Forget the big things. How about in the little things? How about in the, how about in the moments where nobody else is going to see, but your integrity is going to be called into question? How about in the moments when, when, when you've got too much change back? How about in the moments when, when you're, you're, 
you're struggling whether you should do the right thing or do the thing that would benefit you the most. And no one will know but you that you've chosen to do the thing that benefits you the most over doing the right thing. What will you do? The lesson from the dash of Jesus' entire life is that we find him always, even when it seems like he could have done something easier or more convenient, we always find him doing the right thing. How about us? Romans 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Listen to these words. Bless and do not be accursed. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. And if possible, listen now, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. The goal of every Christian is is to always do the right thing. Whether it's the big right thing or the small right thing. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. In the context, it means that you're looking to do what's right always. That no one would have a reason to accuse you of false dealings. Nobody can call you onto the carpet. Nobody can catch you in a snare. They looked for it with Jesus. And those who name the name of Jesus, guess what? They're going to look for it in your life as well. They're looking to make your life the headline on the tabloid. Grand story about your salvation. But then we find out that you're a fraud. Why? Because they caught you somewhere over here not doing what was right. And they are more than willing, with Satan being the chief among them, to point a finger and say, Aha, we knew it. We knew you would lie. We knew you would cheat. We knew you would steal. And they dismiss you, they dismiss your story, and they dismiss your king as all frauds. Simply because you you failed to do what was the right thing. Jesus always did the right thing. Sometimes, it's interesting language there in Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you. Two phrases there, if it's possible, and so far as it depends on you. It seems like he's leaving some room there, doesn't it? Be at peace with all men. That's the goal, that we are at peace with all men, that nobody can accuse us of any wrongdoing. So why does he give these caveats, if possible, and so far as it depends on you? The truth is, is that you will not always be at peace with all men. That's just the fact of the matter. But the point is, don't don't let it ever be your fault that you're not at peace with all men. It may be their fault that you're not at peace with all men. It may be because of the work you're doing for the kingdom. That's specifically what he's talking about, that you might not be at peace with all men. It may be because of the gospel that you proclaim that you are at odds with humanity. That may be true. But as far as it depends on you, meaning do the right things. If you're not at peace with people, let it be because the the kingdom, let it be because of the gospel message and and the dividing sword that it is. Let that be the reason. It's interesting if you turn to 1 Peter with me. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter talks about this. He gives reasons why others might not be at peace with us, and that's gospel reasons. I've got to go the right way here. 1 Peter chapter 2. We got it on the screen? I'm lost here. 1 Peter chapter 2. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. You know that obedience is a matter of authority very often? More on that in a moment. Submit yourselves to the Lord, for the Lord's sake to every 
human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, keep going, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Keep going. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. That's the goal. In doing right, you silence their claims that you are wrong. Keep going. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. That's the context. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. So the point is you, you might suffer unjustly. Unjustly meaning that, that you might suffer because of the kingdom's sake. But, but he's going to go on to say don't suffer because you've not done the right thing. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is, what's the word? Right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. The point is this. There's, there's a couple different occasions when you can, you can be persecuted. Sometimes you're going to be persecuted for my name's sake, Jesus would say, and that's perfectly fine. You've got to, you've got to deal with that and I'll be there to help you deal with that. The point of this verse is, though, don't suffer because you're an idiot. My translation. Don't suffer because you've done not what is right, but you've done what is wrong. And when you suffer because you've done what is wrong, don't call it persecution. Don't don't cry out that you're enduring patiently the the persecution of the evil in this world. No, you're, you're suffering because you made a wrong choice. If you cheat on your taxes and you go to jail, don't call that persecution. For the, key, for the kingdom's sake. Call that you made the wrong choice and now you're answering for that. Keep going. Look at 3.17. He's going to say it in a different way. For it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is, what's the word? Right, rather than doing what is wrong. Chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. It's going to come. You're going to suffer which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. It's not a strange thing. Christians will suffer. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep rejoicing so that it also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with him in exaltation. Keep going. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and the God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as murderer, thief, evildoer, troublesome meddler, on and on. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. What's the point? You can suffer for righteousness or you can suffer because you made a bad choice. Jesus always did the right things. He always did the right things, even the small things, the Monday things, the Wednesday, the, the Friday night things. No matter what it was, not just the big things, but the small things, Jesus always did what was right. He always did what was right. Obedience is is a matter of authority, if you think about it. Obedience is a matter of authority and our respect for that authority. You know, Jesus was under the authority of the Father. How is it that he could wait 30 years on the Father's plan for the right time for him to step onto the scene, step into the Jordan, 
announce his ministry has begun in his baptism. And then live those last three years uh, under some conditions that none of us would, would hope to ever bear. How is it that he could do that? How is it that he could wait patiently and then live humbly obedient? Obedience comes as we submit to authority. That was true of Jesus as well. The Father had a plan. The Father had a plan. Jesus was familiar with the plan, obviously. Why would you be surprised that I would be about the business of my Father? Jesus was always obedient to the business of the Father. He was always in line with the plan of the Father. When the plan of the Father said, wait, 30 years, then we've got to wait. When the plan of the Father said, live in obscurity, in a town where, where no one will know your name, except probably your immediate family, and go work in a wood shop, and fulfill every earthly duty of everybody else, and look just like everyone else, and while you're, while you're doing all that, continue to do the right things, be faithful all along, so that no one will be able to accuse you of any wrongdoing. And Jesus, He did it. Over and over. Over and over. How about us? We, like uh, Saul, we, like my nine-year-old and my six-year-old, I think we like, to, uh, we like to believe we're being obedient in all things, but the truth is, very often especially in the small things. It becomes very difficult for us to follow the example of Jesus and to be in every way humbly obedient so that in no form or no fashion could this world point at our lives and say, what about this? Jesus was above reproach. They could find nothing against him. Even at his crucifixion, we can find no reason to condemn this man. And yet he suffered, and that's okay. But he never suffered for doing what was wrong. Maybe you'll make decisions that are the right thing to do. And maybe in making the decisions to do the right thing, you'll be mocked, you'll be made fun of, you may even be persecuted in a real way, in a physical way. That might actually happen. The Bible says rejoice. Rejoice in those moments. As hard as they may be, you can rejoice in those moments. But we ought to, with everything we have, based on the example we have in Jesus Christ and His humble obedience in everyday living out His dash, we ought to strive in all things to do the right thing. Where do we get our encouragement? Where do we get our power? Not just by His example. Remember what I said. All obedience comes from authority. Are you under authority? Is there, a, is there a father over you? Is there a king over your life? Do you live with this sense that you will for all times be about the business of the king? To the degree that you would be surprised when someone thinks anything different would be going on in your life. Is it normal that, that when folks look at your life, they sense that you must be, no matter what you're doing, whether you're a school teacher, whether you're a businessman, no matter what you're doing, they just assume that you are about the king's business in your life. In your day-to-day living, do they just assume? Or is it strange for them to find you about the business of the king? I hope 
I hope and I pray the same for you that uh, when the Father looks down upon my life, He doesn't have some of the same moments I have with my nine or my six-year-old. Moments where I'm, I'm thinking, just, just trust me. <laughs> I've been around a little longer. When I ask you to do something, I think you can safely assume that I'm asking you for a good reason. And guess what? I may not explain the whole reason to you. But my assumption is, son, daughter, that you're going to trust me and just do what Dad says. And I pray that, um, I pray that the Father in Heaven doesn't have those moments like I have as a father where he has to just chuckle and throw his hands up because I'm over here doing my own thing, doing it my own way. I'll be careful, don't worry. And he's saying, I'm not asking you to be careful. I'm asking you just do it. Do it the way I've asked you to do it. Or moments when he he can't even say anything. He just has to hang his head and, and shake his head at the fact that I've wandered off into my own plan. The example of Jesus for this week is that he was, in all things, he was humbly obedient. Let's pray that that's true of us. Father God, it's no great theological point this morning. There's no major tenet of theology to call into question or to put forth except for the fact that um, The gospel impact on our life demands complete obedience. Very often it demands humble obedience. Obedience that doesn't worry about the why. Obedience that doesn't worry about the how. Obedience that doesn't worry about all the details. But it's the right thing to do. It's the thing you've asked us to do and so we'll do it, Father. My prayer is that my life might be might be a reflection of the example of Jesus' life. Even the simple days. The days when he, uh, when he had to make small decisions. Father, we, we sang earlier that we will serve no other God, only You. Our prayer is that that's true in our own private day-to-day life. What occurred to me, Lord, is that we, the most of us aren't in danger of serving some other false god out there by some strange name. But the greatest danger is that we serve our own self before we serve you as our one and only God. So this morning as we, as we get ready to depart, we declare that you are the only true God. And you are the king of the the throne of our heart. And we will let you direct our course. We'll let you decide what's right and we'll let you decide what's wrong. We'll be faithfully, quickly, and humbly obedient to your plan in our life. And if we have to wait patiently, we'll wait. If we get no answers, we will be humbly obedient still. We declare that you are our authority, our rightful king, and we submit to your leaders.
So as we walk out of this place and we go back to our everyday life, we come down off of the mountain of Sunday. We ask that the simple lessons of Jesus' dash would help us. And as we walk, Lord, we declare that we need you. We declare that we need you so. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.